The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, as creatures of yours, we have received a makeup. You've made us what we are, and we, and we just are that way. One of the ways that you've made us is that we respond to love. We love when we see we are loved. We just sang about it in that last song. Lover of my soul, I want to live for you. You've made us so that there's a, there's a relationship there. You love us and draw us on after you with our lives. We want to live for you, seeing that you love us. The problem is often we forget that, we miss it, we don't see it. You remain the lover of our souls, and you have loved us immensely. You've loved us powerfully, eternally in Christ, but we miss that. And we break that chain. We don't follow on living for you because we don't see your love. So what I'm praying for right now, Father, is that you would renew that in us. You would make clear again to us the same old truth and make it fresh and sweet. That you are, in fact, the lover of our souls. That you have loved us with an everlasting love and drawn us to yourself in loving kindness. Make that clear to us, Father, and from that then draw us on in faithful service of following after you with our lives. So would you, would you please, Father, would you write that kind of around and under this passage today? It's about other things directly, but indirectly, that's where it lands. And so would you be speaking to us while you're at one level speaking about certain facts and details from this passage's surface level? Would you speak to us, your people, beneath and around about your steadfast love and draw us on after you with our lives? That's what I'm asking you to do today. Use this passage in the hands of your spirit in our hearts. Grow us Draw us on after you. Build your church. So we ask you for this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. How does faith in Christ affect our interactions with those who are in authority over us? It's already prayed it. It doesn't matter who we are, where we are, what age we are, wherever we are, we're always beneath someone. There's somebody in authority over us, whether it's in the family, at school, or on sports teams, or some sort of law enforcement or other government entity. It's everywhere. And our passage today focuses us on one particular area, the area of the workplace, the authority we find there. I'm going to use that language then of workplace, bosses, overseers, supervisors, servants, employees. I'm going to use that kind of language interchangeably. But what's here 
applies across the board because we all experience that relationship of authority and in submission. So this can be widely applied, but we're going to be focusing on the workplace. Bosses, like people, run the whole spectrum from foolish and harsh to wise and gracious. But the one thing they all have in common, whether it's a boss at work or a coach on a team, a teacher in a classroom, is that they're up and you're down. And we have to submit to them, regardless of who they are. What difference does faith in Christ make in that relationship, that authority relationship? That's what we're after today in 1 Timothy chapter 6. It speaks of this, this topic of servants working for overseers of any and all sorts, and we can say any and all sorts, even the hardest ones, because our passage is literally about literal slavery. Slaves and masters, owners. The most difficult of that kind of relationship. Which right away, maybe strikes us as odd because slavery is so repugnant, it's just wrong. And so how can the Bible just treat it kind of matter-of-factly? Just drop in a couple of verses about slavery, right? I've talked about pastors right before about talking about false teachers and contentment. Just kind of plops in a couple of verses, treats it matter-of-factly and moves on just as if it is. That's, that seems wrong. And truth be told, that appearance is one factor that does sometimes turn some people against this faith. And seeing how some people have used the, this apparent matter-of-fact treatment to, to exploit that slave-master relationship, that turns some people off. So we need to kind of pause here before we even get into it and say, like, what are we to think about this? Slavery in the scriptures. It's unsettling, perhaps. Well, we have to think about it very carefully. As I've said before when we've touched on passages that, that hit on the topic of slavery, or like the one we heard prayed about this morning, we preached that some time back. We come to that, we must, must, must read it in its ancient context. Most of us today, most Americans today, we hear the word slave and we right away think of the American slavery experience. I'm watching Ken Burns' Civil War documentary. The first episode lays out some of the horrors of what led to the American Civil War. And you can't watch that and say, read this passage and not think about it for a second. We need to think about it for two seconds and put it back in a different non-American context. Perhaps most importantly, what was different about slavery in the ancient world was that it was not tied to racism. Not a method used to keep down a people as much as it was an economic relationship. And as a rule, therefore, that made it less hateful, far less brutal, and more contractual. A lot of people got into slavery from some sort of financial situation, and many researchers now believe that most slaves actually were freed by the time they were 30 because they were able to buy themselves out of or their debts were paid off, and it was over. Much more contractual, much less harsh. Very different. Paul's looking at something and writing into the context of something very different than our American experience. There's a lot to that. 
We could preach, we could talk, we could write a lot about that, but it's important to understand we're looking at something different that's not based in race, much less brutal, much different. However, let's not minimize it. Slavery is still enslavement. One human being owning another, and that's wrong. Not wrong because we in America are now enlightened and understand to be wrong, and all ancient societies thought it was right, but they, they haven't grown up yet. It's not wrong because of public opinion. It's wrong because it's contrary, completely contrary, to God's design for people and community. And so the Bible does speak very clearly against slavery, even in this very book of 1 Timothy. You recall back in chapter 1, as Paul's laying out examples of the Ten Commandments, what example does he pull up for thou shalt not steal? Enslavement. It's against the Ten Commandments. That's the example that comes to his mind. Slavery is sin. It speaks against it directly and it speaks against it indirectly by sometimes speaking about positively what God's design for humanity and community actually was and calling people to treat one another as equal brothers and sisters. So the Bible speaks against slavery in a couple different tones, but we have to allow it to speak against it in a way that matches what the Bible's looking at in the ancient world and not our modern context. It's different than ours. So there's a lot more we could go into on that, but where I'm going this morning is, is to follow it into and then apply it into a different context, like I mentioned all of our authority relationships, our, particularly our work relationships. And my assumption is, given the fact that Christians find themselves beneath an overseer of some sort, a boss, similarly to this passage in some sort of obligatory work-servant authority situation, then what? What do we do? How should we be and why? So, that's what we're looking at here this morning. Let me read the passage, and then I'm going to draw two observations, applying them to our modern authority situations, particularly that of work. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 to 2, then. Paul writes, Let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. And stop there. Two observations, and here's the first, one, one from each verse. First, we must honor even very difficult bosses so as to display God's truth. We must honor even very difficult bosses so as to display God's truth. This is the third section, if you've been following through the book, this is the third section in a row in which the idea of honoring comes up. We're to honor widows, beginning of chapter 5, then honor pastors, Saw that last week, 
And now here we, we come to this, we honor authorities or bosses in the workplace. And we honor them differently depending on what their circumstance is, but we come to it already seeing this progression with some idea of what honoring means. It's something about respect and esteem. We just learned it means in regards to this other context, so that's what's on our mind. And then we come to the, but wait a minute, who are we to honor? I mean, it makes sense with widows, pastors, sure, but what? Because of who he's talking to in verse 1. Those who are under a yoke. This is going to make what seems reasonable actually seem pretty hard. Those under a yoke, like what was used to harness animals. So, figuratively speaking, that word yoke was used to describe all kinds of situations of of a person or a people or even nations that were in some way under the control, the domination, the oppression of another authoritative power. So people under a yoke is a very difficult context, one of control and domination. Not all slavery was like that. The next verse goes in the completely different direction. But this one is. This, this type of slavery he has in mind here is. So he's got a double. He's got those who are under a yoke as slaves. Who are down, down. He's speaking even to the worst of all contexts in a bad situation. So this is going to then speak to every other situation that's less bad than that. All across the whole gamut of control and domination. He's got a word about honor to people right there. That's hard. Now, I need to step off to the side and give a very clear, everybody hear this, sort of aside. Sometimes we find ourselves in situations of oppression domination, control, and the right answer is to get out of it. Or maybe the right answer may be to get out of it, you're not really quite clear, so the next step is to bring it into the light, to discuss it. Talk to a trusted friend or an elder or a pastor, or if you're at work, the HR department or what have you, to bring it out and talk to somebody to find out what should I do. In other words, what I'm trying to make extremely clear here is that this passage is not saying that in the worst of the worst and everything that's not quite that bad, in every situation of domination and oppression, what the Bible says is stay there and bear up under it. No. Is that clear to everybody? And what I want to say is then we invite you if maybe that's you, if, you, if you're feeling that, we invite you, please, we want to be helpful to that situation. Bring it out. Let's talk. But what the Bible is saying, what Paul is saying, what God is saying is that 
even if you can address it, even if there is recourse, even while you are addressing it, and while there is recourse, and when there isn't. Here's the command of the Lord for you right there. Honor. Respect and esteem. He's not worthy of honor. Nobody esteems her. I get that. I get that. Look closely. Regard them as worthy of all honor. It's not saying they are worthy. Regard them as if. Regard them as if. Worthy of all honor. Fully so, not just partially so. Fully so. When he's around and can overhear and when he walks down the hallway and can't. Not just honoring her with words, but sandbagging on the work and sullen and moping around and backbiting and griping and complaining and posting stuff on the internet about how bad your boss is. Regard with all honor as if worthy of it. That's about how I think about a person, how I talk about a person, how I act, and how I carry out the assigned tasks that this authority has given to me. I don't think it's hard to conceptually understand what that looks like to treat somebody as if they are worthy of honor. I think it's hard to do it, but not hard to understand it. To behave in my attitude, in my words, and in my actions, as if I'm fully on board with this supervisor. Fully supportive, respecting the person. As if he's worthy of it, as if she's worthy of it. Is that where you are? That's the kind of thing that's easy to do at a job or with a boss that you love. This is about even the most difficult of ones. To be on the team with and supportive of that one is really hard. So I ask, I ask are you there? And you, and you should think about that and you should, you should pause and say, am I and in what ways might I not be? With whom might I not be? Probably it's easy to fill in the blanks of what you should be, how you should be, what you should be saying. But I think the real question is, how do I get to there? Because I understand what that is, but how? is hard. How do I get there? Well, not by pretending. Not by playing some, some game of denial as if the person actually is better than he is or than she is. The situation is hard and unpleasant. That's granted. But one thing that is extremely helpful to remember right in that moment that this authority or this, this boss, even as he controls you, he doesn't. You've got to kind of put those things there. This boss, even as he controls me, he doesn't. Not really, not fully. You're in the Lord's hands because you are in Christ. So 
You're in the hands of the one who is, who is good, who does good to you, who says, for instance, in Psalm 84, the Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly, from his people, from you. So you got two things here. You've got, you got a, a supervisor who in some way puts you under her thumb and presses you down and dominates. And then you've got another one whose hand beneath that says, actually, I bestow she takes from, and I bestow honor and favor. He denies good, and I give all good things. You gotta put those two things right next to each other. Yes, I'm in someone's hands, but really I'm in his hands. You take your thoughts captive and push them to that hand, to that master, not just the one that you can see with your physical eyes. That's extremely helpful in a situation when you feel put upon to realize, actually, I'm being upheld. Helpful? Think about that. Feed yourself with that truth. But that's not actually the truth that's here. Paul goes in a different direction. There's something else that he wants to, to point you towards. And notice this. I just brought up Psalm 84, which is true. It's in the Bible. So that's biblical, right? However, notice what happens if you only think along the Psalm 84 path. I'm threatened by difficult authority. But I remember that I'm actually upheld by the Lord. And I'm blessed and kept and cared for by divine authority. So I'm facing the departure of honor and I'm given honor. I'm facing the departure of good and I'm given good. So I'm actually, I'm secure, I'm upheld, I'm okay, and I'm still looking at me. Paul takes us in a different direction. Paul's not thinking about me. And Paul doesn't want you thinking about you. Not in the same way. As I, as I like work this through here, I find this really interesting. It's, he's talking to people who are the very definition of under. They're down. And what he says here, sort of, is, is kind of like saying, you actually get to be the adult in the room. You know what I mean by that? We talk about that as you've got a bunch of people who are acting like children, who are acting immaturely, who are, who are selfish, who are not understanding the whole thing. And the adult in the room is the person who rises above that and says, I see more, I will be mature. He says, that's actually you. Because, the command... Regard him as worthy of honor because, what he literally writes, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. And what he means by that is this. Because the almighty, holy God with whom we all must deal the God of glory and grace, 
and the God of justice and righteousness. The God who is eager to show mercy and who is kind, but the God who will not spare the wicked and reject his offer, who reject his offer of mercy in the one place it's offered in Christ. That God is barreling through the corridors of time and approaching this wicked master of yours, and he has no idea who's coming. He has no idea what's coming. But you do. You're the adult in the room. You're the only one who gets it. You are the very definition of under, but in fact, actually, this is tremendously empowering if you think about this, actually, you see it. Something, someone is coming that is really huge, that is eternal in magnitude, not some light and momentary trouble like oppression. Huge! Coming! And he's clueless. He does not get that at all. And, and you, actually, you've been placed right where you have been by your true master in heaven. You've been placed right there to bear witness to the truth about who he is and, and the truth about what the gospel is and what the gospel actually accomplishes when the gospel is actually believed. You are there on a mission. The mission is not about you. The mission is about God, his reputation, that his name would not be reviled but be hallowed. And it's about the gospel, that the gospel, you already know, that the gospel would come to this non-believing boss and would save him from eternity and all the non-believing co-workers who are watching your interaction. It's a mission about him and them, not yourself. Psalm 84, thankfully, biblically, wisely, helpfully, leaves me about myself. Paul actually says, not about yourself but about God and about these people all around you in the workplace, even including the wicked boss. They're going to read the truth about God in you. They're going to read the truth about the gospel in you. I put you there for my sake and for them. You carry in your hands and on your lips and in your posture and demeanor and work ethic, you carry with you God's reputation and their eternity. See that. It'll take your eyes off of light and momentary affliction and it's pointing you towards eternal things. Now, you are, you are not the Lord as as Josh well put this morning, we are not the Messiah. But we are the tools the Messiah is using. That, that's, the, that's the point here. Somehow how you carry yourself in that relationship is going to determine whether God's name and the teaching, the gospel, is reviled or honored. Where God is understood and the gospel is seen as beautiful or whether it's seen as ridiculous. Just like everything else in the world. Because the kind of person it produces is just like the rest of us who all hate the boss. That's what he says we have to carry close to our hearts. That's what we have to take our thoughts captive and turn our minds towards. 
the bosses and coworkers and teachers and classmates and everyone all around you are going to understand whatever it is they understand about God through you. So what do they know about him because of you? They're going to understand the gospel, and they're going to reasonably assume whatever this message is, it produces whatever he is. What do they think about the gospel because of you? God put you there, right there, with them and with that authority figure, with that boss or teacher, whoever. He put you right there to show that the gospel makes people joyful and gracious and generous and patient and righteous and good and able to love enemies and able to pray for those who persecute and inclined to do good to them as best you can. Because that's who God is, and the gospel makes us like God. Like Jesus, who himself was a despised servant who laid down his life to save those who were against him. We're going to live there in front of them, them all around us, in front of this supervisor, and say, I'm a living testimony to something that's not human. Look, see, learn. It's important that that capture our, our vision, not just about something about me, but something that's about God and about a higher mission that I'm a piece of. I've been caught and caught up in this, but it's not really about me. So how do you get there? By following God's pointer finger, God's direction. It's about me and about the gospel mission, not about you. So that God will be honored and the gospel taken seriously. We are to regard as if they're worthy of honor too. And then behave that way. That's the first point. With even the most difficult of authorities. But not all bosses are like that, of course. Some are quite different, which takes us to the second point. To an even greater degree, we must honor believing bosses so as to bless our brethren. To an even greater degree, we must honor believing bosses so as to bless our brethren. At verse 2, the emphasis goes 180. It shifts completely. Now we no longer have Christians under a yoke facing difficult non-believing bosses, but quite the opposite. Now Paul speaks to those who have believing masters, he says. A common occurrence in, in the church in that day, you'd have slaves and masters in the same congregation. And notice something. This verse assumes, this verse is written in the context assuming that what Paul taught in Philemon, we looked at the book of Philemon some time back, that what he taught there is actually taking effect. In Philemon, Paul wrote to a Christian slave master, that's who Philemon is, about how he should treat his now Christian slave 
a man named Onesimus. And Paul's emphasis by the end of that, you, you may recall, comes down like this. Philemon, you have to, have to, it's a command of the Lord, you have to treat Onesimus like a full-fledged beloved brother in Christ, just the same way you would treat me, the Apostle Paul, as a full-fledged beloved brother in Christ. So you have to give yourself to do what's good for him, your brother. Which is going to be a strange sort of slavery if that continues. Which is why eventually it didn't continue. Every, every country in history that's been gripped by the gospel has eliminated slavery. But maybe not immediately. For some time it continues on for various reasons with slave and master together beside, them, beside one another. Slave and master still, but as brothers. And verse 2 assumes that that teaching was taking hold because Paul commands the slaves not to treat their Christian masters with disrespect. Literally it says, don't regard them or don't look down on them because they're Christian brothers. Imagine that for a second. That's a really strange form of slavery in which a slave despises, discards his master. It's hard to ask further evidence that this is a different kind of slavery than what we have in our history. Hard to imagine that for us, but we do see that sort of scenario all the time in the workplace. When the Christian employee takes an extra 15 minutes for lunch, Assuming, presuming, that the boss is a believer, he's a brother in Christ, he's not going to really care about that that much. It's okay. Comes back in. Uh, where, where you been? I mean, you're like really late again. Oh, come on, brother. I was out in the car reading my Bible, you know, having my quiet time. You know how important it is for me to get with the Lord? Yeah, but everybody else is back 15 minutes ago again. Yeah, but, you know, it's, what's more important? I mean, working or, or serving Jesus? Well, uh, I used to be in charge around here, and then he became a Christian, and now, I guess I'm supposed to treat him as a brother. I mean, that happens in a situation where the Christian boss doesn't know how to, and is getting taken advantage of. And Paul just says, don't do that, Christian slave, Christian worker. Don't do that. That's wrong. Again, for a whole bunch of obvious reasons. It's unethical. Actually kind of stealing time from the, from the company. It makes others resent you and this faith. It puts your, your Christian friend, your, your boss, in a really awkward position. Lots of different reasons that's totally wrong, but Paul emphasizes again one reason in particular. Don't slack off, don't take advantage, but rather try hard, do an even better job because the one that you're working for, the one that you're serving and who would benefit from your good work is a believer and beloved. Because as a believer... He's beloved by you and by God. So follow as I'm walking this through here. So you'd want him benefited, right? 
like God would want him benefited, right? Because you love him, right? Like God loves him. There's the logic of the argument. And that's the problem. You should want him benefited like God wants him benefited, but you don't. Not really. That's why you weren't working hard for him. But you're taking advantage of him because who do you really want benefited? Who do you really love? Who are you really looking out for in your work? Who are you really serving? I want to walk through this a couple of times because as I looked at this passage this week, here's where, I, here's where I was with this. I read it. The point in it seems, first of all, plain as day. And I've got a pretty good work ethic anyway, so I'm kind of thinking about, I, I'm not the kind of person who would, you know, say, come back 15 minutes late in the first place. So what's this about? What's the point here? What's the issue? So let me sneak up on it again and, and follow this. If, if this is belaboring it for you, I apologize, but follow this through. Verse 2 ends with such a logical, obvious, and innocent bit of reasoning. Of course you'd want to work hard. Harder, even. Better, even. For a Christian boss, right? Because you love him and would, would want to benefit him, Right? So why did I have to write this down? Because you're not actually doing that. Which makes me question my whole logical premise here. Who are you in this to serve? Who are you in this loving? You don't actually love your brother like you should and don't want to benefit him. And in his in place, you're actually serving and loving and benefiting yourself. And you know what? That's actually the same issue in verse 1. So what I discover as I look at this is I find two verses with two really, like on the surface, kind of obvious points, I think. But beneath it, I find one common point. It's really about me and my heart and who I love. And in good situations, I find that the pressure is relieved by this boss. And so I live, I take advantage and live for me. I don't love my brother. And in the other one, the pressure is applied, and maybe I perform grudgingly and angrily because I'm not really concerned to love God and his reputation and love my non-Christian brother with the gospel. Both of those situations, what's really going on is I'm in this whole authority, submission relationship for me. And I take as much as I can get from it. Is that you? What I find here is that what sneaks up on me, at least, and maybe it sneaks up on you, is actually something that's about me. And what God as my, what God as your master has called you to be everywhere, in every relationship, particularly in authority relationships. 
a servant of his for his sake in love to other people. And I love myself more than him and more than them way too often. Is that you? You may discover it in great work, in great work relationships, in great work environments where you take advantage or in hard ones where you grumble. Is that you? God wants to call us out of that and call us to Christ-likeness, to be the kind of people who step into the world seeking to serve, seeking to lay down our lives on behalf of others rather than seeking to gather to ourselves every benefit we can get our hands on. And the first way he wants to address that in you is to point out that is you. So look, so think about it. Do you find that maybe in your work environments? I'm in this for me. Are you? You can notice it in the grumbling or notice it in the taking advantage. Either, either way, either side. Am I, am I in this together for myself benefit or to give away my life in blessing? He wants to kind of sneak up on us, I think, and point that out. Here's what I have you in these authority relationships for, to bless others and honor me. Maybe he'll show that to you. And then secondly, he wants to fix that in you, graciously, perhaps ironically, by serving you himself. That is ironic, I think. That the master says, I want to make you better servants, and how I'm going to do that is I'm going to serve you. This is one of the things that God accomplished for you in Jesus when he became a servant to people just like us. He became a servant to us to redeem you, to fix you, which in part means to pay for the sin of self-focus that is common to us. And then to kind of pull out the thorn, to pull out that thorn that says, it's right for me to focus on myself. I know what's best for me. And I know how best to get it. God's not actually good. God's not actually for me. I heard it said somewhere, whispered to me in the garden, that I must take care of myself. And God says, let me pull that out by showing you something about me. I bestow honor and favor. No good thing do I withhold from those who walk with me. 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 I'm a servant to you. And seeing that love, that first love, that sacrificing life laying down first love, we love. He made us that way. He wants to point out something that's wrong in us and then to redeem us from it by serving us to then make us happily so, sweetly so, submitted servants to him, for him, for others. So here you are in a work relationship. What difference does it make that, that you're a Christian? Well, Okay, there, 
there's the two, the two basic commands about how you should be. Okay. Don't grumble. Don't, don't complain. Treat people as worthy of honor. Don't take advantage of, of favorable bosses, Christian bosses. Okay, yeah. But really what's going on there is that what he's trying to do, he's using this environment to remake me, to remake you. And then to through you show to other people this is who I actually am and maybe remove the thorn from them too. So turn your eyes upon Christ and see what a servant he was for you. And that's what draws you to be a servant to him and to other people. I think this passage is interesting. Because it, it catches me. I didn't see it coming. But it actually confronts me and then woos me. You have a master in heaven who's been a beautiful servant to you, a beautiful servant to you. See that. His love for you. That is what he wants to renew in us. And then with that, draw us on to follow and serve him and others. So may he accomplish that in you. May he show that to you and send you out into the workplace as witnesses for him, testifying to who he is and what he's about. So that's what I'm going to pray for right now. Pray with me, please. Father, would you maybe catch us with this passage, maybe catch our hearts, catch us in our selfishness, catch us in the way we're using work for our own advancement, catch us there. And then win our hearts to you. Maybe there are some people here right now, Lord, I, I, I don't know. Maybe there's somebody here right now that, that really has a cruddy situation. They need to resolve it. They need to address it in some way. Help them with that. But in the middle of that, Lord, would you help them to see why you have them there? To believe you and trust you and serve you there. Do a miracle and move them to give away their lives, even in that cruddy situation. Help your people, please. I thank you for work. And I thank you for the authorities that you've put over us, all of them, of all different sorts. And I thank you for what you do in our lives through them. Now mature us and grow us up, please. Make us full, mature adults who see you and who follow after you and, and give ourselves away to others. Help us with that, I pray. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.